Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. And welcome into the Housing Hour. My name is Mark Griffith. I am filling in for Kevin Ray, who cannot be with us today. But I've got my special friend, <laughs> colleague, and, um, well, just lunch buddy, and also guest on a lot of radio shows over the weekend, Richard Swan is sitting in at co-host. Hello, Richard. Always happy to be here. Well, I thank you, because uh, actually you're a big part of the show today, because you've uh, introduced us to our guest, who's going to be on here, and we'll bring him in here in a second. But first, I want to tell everybody how they can plug into the Housing Hour. Just go to the Treasure Trove of Information, thehousinghour.com. Check us out there. We've got all of our past shows and everything. Also, Facebook slash The Housing Hour. That's a good place for the social media platforms for you to touch base with us. Twitter at The Housing Hour and all the other different social platforms because I've got a whole team behind us that are doing all the social media stuff and uh, doing a lot of good things there. So anyway, reach out to us because we've had a couple shows where Richard, we've uh, done some uh, posting on the Facebook, and we've gotten a lot of activity, a lot of questions, and past guests. So it's a good place to be. It is. It is. And I always enjoy the guests that we have on who bring just a wealth of information, not just about buying a house or the home buying process or, or home inspections, but about life in general and about the world around us. And that's our guest today is going to bring us a insight into that. Oh. Uh, and and what a what a guest today. So without further ado, we're gonna bring him in. This is an author of thirty-four books on the history of roadside fun, pop culture type of things from you know, everything that you can remember as a kid, if you're going back to the forties or fifties, if you've gotten in a car and driven around in the southern states, this guy has put everything in a book, several books. 34 to speak. He's got one coming out in April. His name is Tim Hollis. He's out of Birmingham, Alabama. He's on the phone with us today. Tim, welcome into the Housing Hour. Well, it's great to be here. Great to be here. Yeah, let me let me say that uh, when it comes to the topic of buying or selling a house, that's one thing that I can't help people with. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I've actually I've actually lived in the same house for 55 of my 57 years. And uh, so uh, hopefully buying a house is something I'll never be doing. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> but you never know. You never say never. But uh, <laughs> what we want to do, we want to we take everybody on the road because it, what this is, his first book, I think this is your first book, Dixie Before Disney, 100 Years of Roadside Fun. Is that your first one? Yeah, that was the, uh, yeah, that was the first one that wasn't local. I had done, I had done uh, a, a local Birmingham book before, but that was the, uh, that was the one that really started, started me on the national trail, I guess you'd say. I see. And uh, what, what I love, Richard, is in the first part of the book, he kind of goes back and tells how this all began. Um, you know, with uh, the story of his life, you know, when he was, I think it was 1967 when you were, mm -hmm. how old were you, nine? 
Uh, no, well, we, I mean, when we took our no. first family vacation, that was in the summer of 1966 when I was three years old. Okay. And uh, that was when we, we went to the Smokies for the very first time. So is that where all this began, when you, your passion for the roadside fun, writing these books, is that how it all started for you? It really, it really is, uh, because, of course, I, I loved going on those vacation trips. My dad loved them. My mom absolutely hated traveling. <laughs> we, right. if, we, if we picked somewhere to go on a vacation trip, it had to be somewhere that we could go and be back home in two or three days because she could not stand to be away from home any longer than that. Uh, but, of course, in between the trips, my dad was the one who kept all of the memorabilia. I mean, he kept boxes of brochures and postcards, and he was an avid uh, amateur photographer. And so in between the trips, I had all of this material to be familiar with, and some was material from places that we never that we never actually went to. He would just you know write to different tourism departments and get a whole package of of items. So, um, but yes, it's something that I was fascinated with from the time I was very young and it was actually taking place. Right. And let's, let's go back a little bit, um, because in, in the book, you, 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 you talk about the history of how, you know, all of this came about, like in the starting of the roads, because, you know, if, if you're a millennial now, roads were always good and roads were always available, you know, for all your life. In my lifetime, uh, you know, roads have always been good myself, but I do know that my father talked about when, you know, roads weren't so good and travel wasn't always available in certain locations. And and, and the farm that uh, my grandparents lived was Upper East Tennessee in Irwin, Tennessee, up in the mountains. And once you got to Irwin, Tennessee, it still took a half day to drive out to the mountain, which was only, you know, 20 miles down the road because the roads are so bad. They're just not accessible. So tell us a little bit how roads developed over over the time, because you addressed that a little bit in some of the major roads. Talk to us a little bit about that. Well, of course, the, the South was about the last place in the country to develop any sort of, of good roads. In fact, that was the name of the the movement. They called it the Good Roads Movement mm-hmm. uh, to try to to develop uh, major highways. And of course, it was it was people like um, oh, like Carl Fisher, the same guy who started the Indianapolis Speedway. He was the one who who created the idea for the Dixie Highway that originally it was supposed to connect Chicago with Florida, but I think before it was over with, they extended it north all the way up through Michigan to the Canadian border. But the Dixie Highway was sort of a lifeline uh, for tourists that wanted to travel south. Uh, And, and of course, you must remember that in those years uh, after the Civil War, and, of course, when automobiles were first getting started, to people up north, the south was this... uh, sort of a charmingly barbaric part of the country that, they, had, that they, they really weren't familiar with. They probably thought it was a lot more primitive than it really was. But once they started dealing with some of those dirt roads, I think they probably uh, got a pretty good idea about it. And, of course, places like the, uh, the communities in the Smokies, like Gatlinburg and, and places like that were, I mean, they were just out in the middle of nowhere, uh, I, I think I said in one of my books coming up 
that um, it's sort of amazing that when we went there, when we went to Gatlinburg for the very first time in 1966, that the tourism industry there was only about 30 years old at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 1936, Gatlinburg was still a little... uh, place on the side of a mountain with a couple of log structures. So uh, it's it's sort of amazing at how recently all of that came about. And it's the same thing with the roads like you're talking about. I mean, people people didn't do automobile travel in any real numbers until, let's say, the 1920s. So um, until until there were enough automobiles on the road, there really wasn't much of a... uh, there wasn't much of a reason to have good roads. Yeah, you know, I, I know in this area, the Dixie Highway came through, and I know the Dixie Highway began in, in 1915, right about there. I think it ended mm-hmm. like in 1927, something like that. Um, well, that was when the, the when they decided to number all of the highways. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah so so there was, a, there was a, a, a method of madness for the Dixie Highway, and, and I kind of always thought that it was – I mean, there was a, a lot of things that came through Tennessee. I mean, you know, from Jellicoe or from Kentucky, it came down uh, what we know now as Clinton Highway, and it came through Knoxville. There's another route that ran out, you know, down Magnolia. So Dixie kind of intersected intersected with us in this area, and um, but our roads were pretty good, you know, in the 1910s uh, in the Knoxville area. So. We've had a lot of progress and a lot of money resources. I found one article, Tim, where Knoxville and Anderson County had put in some of the largest investments in infrastructure of roads uh, in the southeast before everyone else. Well, that's a good point, and and it brings up the fact that uh, before the, the national, the federal highways got started, it was up to local and state and county governments to maintain their roads. So, exactly. Uh, you know, as as people have said, if you were driving on the Dixie Highway, you might be on a beautiful paved road until you got to the county line, and then all of a sudden it would become a dirt road. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it really it really depended on where you were and, and and how much money the local government was putting into things like that. Well, it's really interesting because right outside our window here at the studios of Cumulus in Knoxville was the Dixie Highway, and there's a restaurant that sits on the corner that used to be a restaurant in 1930s, and that was one of the main restaurants. And uh, just right over the, about a block away, was a development called Dixie uh, uh, Subdivision. So after this break, we're going to come back and we're going to continue our discussion with Tim Hollis and the historic roads and all attractions. We'll be back after these messages. Get your kicks on Route 66. Will it from Chicago? Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour. This is Mark Griffith. And I'm with Richard Swan as my co-host helping me out today and actually responsible for this show because he got our guest on. And this is a fantastic topic. It's one that I love because I love history and I love searching out old roads. So, um, you know, we've got with us 
on the phone from Birmingham, Alabama, Tim Hollis, who's 34 books and just a bunch at a museum down in in, in Alabama, uh, Birmingham. Alabama, Birmingham. Um, Dixie Before <laughs> Disney is 100 Years of Roadside Fun. That's the book we're kind of like focusing on right now. You've got another one coming out in, in April. So, Tim, tell us. Um, tell us about uh, some of the things that in the, the book for for the, the uh, Dixie to Disney. Tell us a little bit about the first things that occurred with drivers back in the 50s. And so, what were they looking for when they went out? Uh, doing on the roads, what were the first attractions that were out there, the the first things that people saw? Well, I don't know exactly what would have been the first attractions to develop, but of course, anywhere, anywhere that there were tourists, there were people who were out to separate those tourists from their money, <laughs> especially, especially northern tourists. Uh, I think that... Uh, uh, the the southern tourism industry probably wouldn't have existed if it hadn't been for people from up north. It was uh, W.S. Stuckey who made the remark one time. He said, thank God the north won the war. It would have been awful if there hadn't been any Yankees to sell to. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, at one point uh, when the uh, when the state of Georgia was about to, uh, to buy Stone Mountain to turn it into a, a state park, one of their senators uh, went on record as saying that a, a, a Yankee tourist is worth a bale of cotton, and they're twice as easy to pick. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> well, you know, that was, well, w- one of the things uh, is, you know, I know that when the research I was doing on the Dixie Highway here locally, that a lot of hotels, a lot of those restaurants and food places and things, they really didn't start coming online till probably later uh, you know, in the highway, it was if it was formed in 1950 and the roads started going, it it seemed like it was later than that. Do you know when the first motels, the classic hotel that's on the side of the road on 441 and all of those places, those well, old? Well, of course. I mean, motels. I think they go back to like the late 20s in California, but it took a while for them to spread throughout the country. Tour roadside tourism, as we know it, is primarily a, a post World War II. Uh, development. Uh, I mean, before before World War II, there, you know, it was still, I guess, pretty rural, pretty primitive. But with that post-war economy, and especially the baby boom, uh, that was when people started hitting the roads in tremendous numbers. And of course, there had to be more businesses, uh, gas, food, lodging, attractions. There had to be a lot more businesses to uh, to service those people. Uh, a good example of that, and maybe maybe you want me to shut up for a minute and no. let Richard talk, but that would be his family's attraction there in ah. Pigeon Forge, the, uh, the old Fairyland uh, attraction. That was a good example of something that was put there strictly to take advantage of all of the people who had little bitty kids as part of the baby boom that were coming to the uh, That's a great one. Let's, right. uh, let's uh, Tell us a little well, bit and, about and your family history there, Richard. Okay, and, and first, Tim, to tag on that is the National Park really created uh, an opportunity for Gatlinburg to exist because without well, the course, National Park, yeah. and that was started in 36, I think, so people wouldn't have really gone to that as a destination because before that it was all private land. And you couldn't get access to it. And then you have this national park created. But yes, um, in Pigeon Forge, back in the uh, late 50s and 60s, uh, my family had a 
um, tourist attraction up there that was called Fairyland. It was basically mechanical characters that acted out uh, different scenes from fairy book stories. Um, so you had a lot of different things, um, and you just basically walked through, and it told, uh, you know, like of Sleeping Beauty, and it told other fairy tale type stories, but just like one scene of the story. So it didn't give you the it whole story. It was like story. a series of department store windows, I yes, guess. Yes, absolutely. Vignettes. And then it also right, had right. a um, gift shop, uh, of course, tourist tourist type things the old little black bears the old the uh, drums um from the cherokee side the uh drums to beat on the little hatchets and all of that were in the gift shop where exactly was it located do you know it you was on us? kind of the north end of the parkway headed or um, i guess south yeah. end of the parkway if headed into the park yeah. uh near where if you're, familiar, if you're yeah if you're familiar with with the pigeon forge of today there is a uh, built just within the last two or three years. There's a uh, Krispy Kreme donut shop on the spot now. Yeah. Uh, I think right. I think right after Fairyland closed, I think that was when they built the Ponderosa Steakhouse on that spot. And uh, then, like I said, just within within the last few years, it's Krispy Kreme. It's down at the end, like where there's a. There's a Cracker Barrel, there's a KFC, and some other places down there. If you're remembering but, of that time frame, there was Z Buddha's, uh, was a restaurant, right. kind of a pancake Z restaurant. Buddha owned practically everything back Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this, because, you know, people found these places, and, and part of your book was, uh, you know, I, I noticed that there was, you called it, you know, billboards galore or something like that. How did they advertise their location? How did people find these? Were they in travel logs? Was it? Just by sight, by driving around, how was it, Tim? I don't, I don't find that many travel guides from that era. Of course, it may just be that people didn't save them that much. But I think they depended a lot on roadside advertising. That was why when uh, when there were different campaigns to quote unquote beautify America and get rid of the billboards, uh, the places like the tourist attractions banded together to try to battle that because that was the only way they had to advertise uh, that they were there. I mean, think about where would Rock City have been if it hadn't been for the barns and the birdhouses and the billboards. No one would have known that they were up there on Lookout Mountain. So uh, it was the same way, especially for the small ones like, uh, like Fairyland. I've come across a couple of brochures from the place but other than that, I think it would have been brochures and billboards that... Uh, well, and yes, those rack card brochures, which you feature a lot of in your book, you feature a lot of the, the picture of the front of those in throughout the book, Dixie, Dixie Before Disney and, and other books that you've done. And those roadside brochures were put in uh, restaurants, put in um, gas stations, put in little hotels, mm-hmm. so that when people stop there and they're milling about in the lobby waiting for somebody to wait on them then they can look and see oh well that looks interesting i'll go there and i'm sure that those yeah. places printed those by the thousands yeah um, well it's, it's sort of it's, it's sort of staggering when you think about it i'm sure that this wasn't the case for small attractions like fairyland but uh when you take a place like uh, silver springs down in florida i think i was told that uh, that when they printed 
a run of brochures to go into the restaurants and the places like you're talking about. They would print six million at one time. Yeah, <laughs> you, would, you just you just consider how many places they had to distribute that stuff. Right. And uh, you know, and I'm sure that I mean even even for a place uh, like Fairyland, they would have still marketed all over eastern Tennessee and northern Georgia, northern Alabama. I'm sure. Uh, you know, a good part of North Carolina. So uh, I'm sure the press run on those brochures was was quite large. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it was in the you know five to ten thousand probably at a time. Mm-hmm. So you know when you had these type of attractions that you know just got families in their cars and started driving around in, in the South or wherever they were, um, it, it seems like uh, you know you have to have food. And it's just was was that the driving force of all these food places was Stucky's that sticks out of my mind, because when we traveled in the south from Philadelphia, we came down to Tennessee to my grandparents farm in Irwin, Tennessee, like I stated, Um, you know, you saw all these Stucky's, you saw things like that. What what was the explosion? Was it Stucky's the main drive on all this? Well, yeah, I mean, of course, that was that was the mainstay of their business is tourists who were especially going back and forth to Florida. You will notice that Stucky's always had sort of a Florida theme to it, no matter which state they were in. But, of course, what really happened with them was once the interstates started being built, before places like McDonald's or Holiday Inn or Exxon, before they started building at interstate exits, uh, Stuckey's was building at interstate exits. And, I, I mean, you would drive for miles and miles, and a Stuckey's would be the only thing you would see sitting out there in the middle of nowhere. So that was really, really mm-hmm. when they were at their peak was probably the, the late 60s or early 70s when the interstates were still fairly new and uh, the exits had not become crowded with other with other businesses. Right, right. Uh, so, and, and you also had uh, like uh, Howard Johnson's that had restaurants. And we're going to talk about that when we come back on the yep. other side of the break. We're going to continue that discussion and the restaurants that are so famous now. We'll be back after these messages. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour. We've got a great show. Richard Swan sitting here at my right-hand side of the studio. And Tim Hollis in on the phone with us from Birmingham, Alabama. And we're going to continue our conversation about some of the fun stuff, this retro look of the historic pop culture things that occurred when you were a kid back in the 50s and the 60s driving around. We talk about all sorts of things, the the foods, the the uh, just the locations of things that were out there. There was just so much fun. You think of Howard Johnson's, you think of uh, the Holiday Inn. Um, it's like you said, Tim, some of these came online post-World War II, didn't they? Most of them, yes. Uh, well, like Holiday Inn, for example, uh, I think started in 52, 53, somewhere around in there, because the uh, the founder had gone on a vacation trip with his wife and kids, and he got rather upset when he found out that uh, 
when they had to stop at a motel that the the owners were charging him for each child you know they were counting each child as a resident of the motel and so he decided that he was going to go home and start a chain across the country where you would ne- they would never charge for children as long as they stayed with their parents oh, right. so uh, it's it's interesting how many of the uh, of the the big things in the tourism industry started as little family entrepreneurial type businesses uh right you know, like, well the, i think one one example is uh there in pigeon forge where there was a uh, family uh, the same the same family who had started the Tweetsie Railroad up in North Carolina, the Robbins brothers, uh, they started a little park that they called the Rebel Railroad. Uh-huh. That had a uh, it had a Civil War theme instead of instead of cowboys and outlaws or cowboys and Indians, it had Yankees versus rebels there, <laughs> and the um, you know the the Confederate soldiers. Or the, actually, the Yankee soldiers would attack the train, and the rebels would run them off. You know, so that was the theme for the Rebel Railroad. Well, but um, you know what that became? That, yeah, after yeah. that, tell, well, yeah, that's tell, what I was getting to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're getting yeah, we, a story there. I want to hear, Dad. I, I, I remember it. the railroad, Rebel Railroad, and have a photo at some point um, when mm-hmm. you know we were at the Rebel Railroad. But most people, and this is going to surprise our listeners today because most people are going to be surprised when you say what it has become because most of them do not know that original name <laughs> well tell and us I the history let, i will tell let you the, break that yeah tell us the history yeah well it went through of course two or three different ver- different versions but after the rebel railroad it became a western park that was called gold rush junction and then eventually gold rush junction was sold to the uh, Hershen family from Branson, Missouri, who had Silver Dollar City, and so they changed the name there. And then uh, the Silver Dollar City people, they went into partnership with a certain lady, and and they changed the name to Dollywood. So uh, that is the evolution of the Rebel Railroad. But amazingly, with all of those changes, uh, if you visit Dollywood today, the train ride is the it's the same train ride that started out as the Rebel Railroad. That's something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that was see, a good example of how it went from individual to corporate, I guess. And and that's kind of my question. And I was ta- telling Richard off the side. I, I, you know, this this history, this pop culture history that you have in your book, it seems like it's it's a process of evolution as it evolved over the course of time. Uh, as travelers got in, in there's a, a competition for the dollars, like you said, from the Northerns that were coming down. But there seems to be this growing thing. It, it started off at food, maybe small little venues where people were, family were doing. But then it evolved to bigger things like fantasy lands and, and, and then heading toward the beach and historical spots and locations like that. Talk a little bit about how this evolved. Well, yeah, you're right. And it's, it's sort of interesting how it, it it went usually places like the Smokies or like the beaches, they would start out with attractions that were at least somewhat related to the area that they were in. I think in Gatlinburg, other than the craft shops, which went back further than anything else as far as tourists were concerned, but I think the first real attraction there was the thing called the uh, Homespun Valley Mountaineer Village. It was like a a recreation 
of a of a mountain community, uh, and it sat I think where the um, I think it's on uh, where the the Gatlinburg where their civic center complex is now. But uh, you know usually that was how attraction how areas would start out with their attractions in Pigeon Forge they had Hillbilly Village, which of course closed not too long ago. Um, but then, as time went on, I guess that the uh, the people who who lived there or the people who were in business there would start to look for ways to branch out, and you would get things like wax museums or like the um, the Sidwell family, who uh, had a they they were in the business of building miniature golf courses, and eventually they just decided to. Uh, sort of put that to use and they built the park in Pigeon Forge called Magic World with all of the concrete dinosaurs and a volcano you could walk through and all of that which you know had absolutely nothing to do with Pigeon Forge culturally but it just it fit in as part of the uh, the tourism landscape there was even a um uh uh, a Tommy Bartlett water ski show in Pigeon oh. Forge at one time, if you can imagine that. Yeah, and I, I remember I that. I don't think many, yeah, I don't think too many people go to the Smoky Mountains to see water ski shows. <laughs> but I think generally they thought that anything that would work in Florida ought to work there, too. It's amazing how many uh, trained uh, porpoise act shows there were in the Smoky. Right, well, <laughs> and there was Porpoise Island was in Pigeon Forge as well. That's, That's right. crazy. Um, I never and, heard of that. You never heard well, of that? Porpoise Island? No. <laughs> there's a, uh, you know, there's an entertainment complex called The Island in Pigeon Forge, right. and that's the old Porpoise Island property. <sighs> oh. So uh, that was where the name came from. <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, so over time, you know, some of these attractions that were pop culture, these fantasy lands, these type of attractions, but then, you know, people started getting into historical spots. Was that a natural progression? Were the historical spots and, and battlefields and things, were they always a part of this road trip, or did this occur I later? Think, yeah, I think, the, I think the historic sites... Uh, they probably existed maybe even before uh, before the automobile travel. Uh, I, I know I remember. I'm trying to remember where I heard this story, but it was like back in the in the late 1890s. Uh, Garnet Carter, the fellow who who eventually founded Rock City, uh, one of his first jobs as a young teenager was at the Chickamauga battlefield in Georgia when there was like some sort of an anniversary going on and he was there selling souvenirs to the people uh, who had come to see the battlefield. So I do believe that that sort of that sort of tourism probably went back even further than all the rest of it. Uh, I think that's why usually at historic sites, they're not the kind of attractions that you find going out of business. <laughs> right, right. They, uh, they're, they're, they sort of stay there, Man. whereas other places come and go. But one of the things when I was driving down from Philadelphia as a kid in the 60s, similar to you, you know, in in the early 60s, 66 maybe, um, I, I, we always saw these things. My father knew what they were because he was from Knoxville and my mother was from Knoxville. But we would see these things, you know, see uh, Ruby Falls and Rock mm -hmm. City. I mean, that they were everywhere and it seems like as soon as you hit virginia you saw this on mailboxes and on barn sides and right. roofs and stuff what was that how did that all start well of course i think the story has probably been streamlined over the years but the way the way that it's been told is that around 1936 or so 
Rock City had been open for about four years by that time. Uh, but there was a fellow with a with a, a sign painting company in Chattanooga that he said that if he, if he ever got Garnet Carter started on barn roofs, he'd paint them until his his whiskers got down to his belt. And it was true that he introduced Garnet Carter to the idea of having these messages painted on barn roofs. And uh, the legend is that Garnet Carter. Just he wrote out Sea Rock City on a piece of paper is you know what the barns were going to say. Right. In reality, if you look at the if you look at the photos of the barns, they very rarely just said Sea Rock City. I mean, they would say, you know, Sea Rock City, World's Eighth Wonder, or you know things like that. Gotcha. Uh, C seven states from Rock City. Right. But that was just a um, it was it was a very economical way of advertising i think they paid the farmers maybe a dollar a year to let them use their barns like that wow and um you know it just it made rock city into a into a a southern icon and uh, of course they eventually started the bird houses right which would be placed in front of service stations and motels or anywhere there was a lawn to put a big bird house on there and um so of course they're still I mean, they're still going strong today. You probably noticed I've done a couple of books on Rock City. Right. So the uh, the whole the whole story can be put together between those two books. You mentioned right. you mentioned Stuckey's earlier. That was it was sort of a coincidence. Uh, of course, the thirtieth book that I did was actually a it was a Stuckey's history with all of the uh, the stuff from their archives and stuff that I gathered from other people. Well, it turns out that the company has now discovered a, a cache of archives that no one knew about when I was doing that book. Wow. And they have, um, they've talked my publisher into doing a sequel to All that right. one. So I've got to have that one done in about six months in order for it to be out uh, early next year. But we're going to use all of the the stuff that turned up after the first Stuckey's book was done. Okay, and and uh, when you get that all put together, we're going to get you back on the show. Hey, we're coming up on a hard break, and uh, we'll come back and we'll continue this discussion right after these messages. All right. I've been to Reno, Chicago, Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, Lobaloma, Bangor, Baltimore. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And we're back into the Housing Hour, talking about everything pop culture, everything that you remember as a kid, maybe in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, driving on a road trip with your family. We've got the expert, the guy that knows everything. He's done research on this, Tim Hollis, and he's written 34 books on this type of topic. I'll just name a few of them here. Dixie Before Disney, that's what we've been kind of talking about, 100 Years of Roadside Fun. He wrote another one called The Land of the Smokies, Florida Miracle Strip, Tunes in Toyland, Ain't That a Knee Slapper? It's a history of comedic performances. Of course, you know, of course there would be some of that all over the place. Sea Rock City, the history of Rock City Gardens. We kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. Stuckey's Mouse Tracks, part of the complete breakfast. I don't know. Hey, Tim, tell us a little bit. When I started reading this, Stuckey's and Mouse Tracks, what's Mouse Tracks? That was it's the, the 
it's the history of the uh, the Walt Disney Records label. Uh, oh. You know, those of us of a certain age, we grew up with the Disneyland records that had the uh, the stories and the songs. I mean, in the days before home video, that was the you. only way that kids could enjoy Disney movies at home. I see. Uh, gotcha. So, yeah, that was the the history of that label. The LPs and, and things um, like that. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and Funicello phenomenon and all of that. Yes. And the uh, uh, the book you did, Part of a Complete Breakfast, that was about all of the characters used the on cereal boxes. Characters. Gotcha. Yep. So they each yep. had their that's own character, which became kind of its own entity. And I guess what, right. what and I love, was... what I love so much about your books is there may be five or six items in there that I know really well. But you tell me information about those five or six that I really didn't know. And then you acquaint me with other things that I drove by that right. I never really stopped and saw, but I knew them. I saw they were there. And you tell me so much about them. And I'm like, wow, I wish I could have seen those. So, I mean, your knowledge, a lot of your knowledge is coming from just personal experience. You've been to yeah, most of these places. Kind of well, no, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not sad. It's what all of us have a part of that in our history, in our background, especially with certain age groups. We grew up going to these attractions, you know, and I was talking to Mark during the break about um, they even had bumper stickers was another way they marketed that while you're in the attraction, they'd stick a bumper sticker on your car. Um, and I think. Can and you he, imagine doing that now? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Well, and he was disagreeing me, but I was thinking there was one that said, I've seen Rock City. There might be. The only photos I've ever seen are just, you know, the, the standard Rock City bumper stickers. But you're right. that um, I mean, Rock City would do that. Six Flags Over Georgia would do that. Silver Springs would do that. Uh, I think that the um, at least the way I remember it at Six Flags was that if you if you left your sun visor down, that meant you didn't want a bumper sticker on your car. But if you didn't leave the visor down, you were fair game. Oh, that's awesome. Um, well, let me let me let me tell everybody because you can get these books online, and we'll have a link to Amazon also to where you can buy these books. But this Dixie before Disney, and and this is the one that I have in front of me: a hundred years of roadside fun. This is a great coffee table book. I mean, if you have something, or for your business if you've got just a business I, i'm thinking about getting this one and putting it in my um office at, in oak ridge office it's just a it's just a fun book to thumb through because you've got so many pictures of some of those great iconic uh brochures and photos i don't know where you got all this stuff who keeps this well, stuff in, in that book yeah in that book most of the stuff came from my own collection wow uh, that was really before i before I started gathering it from other archives, I probably should mention, too, that technically Dixie Before Disney is out of print now. I think there are still copies available through Amazon or other sources, but that book came out 21 years ago. And so I don't think it's, I don't think it's technically in print anymore. But uh, How'd you but get one, Richard? Again, Richard I bought one. I, yeah, I have I, I several. Think it, I think it can still be bought. It's just there won't, once they're gone, there won't be any more of them. Huh? But uh, well, that's uh, but yeah, that sounds like a thing is buy it while you can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit about your new new book coming out in in April. It's called Lost Attractions of the Smoky Mountains. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's part of a series that I'm doing for that publisher. 
the Lost Attraction series. We take uh, different areas or different states and just document the attractions that no longer exist, primarily attractions that no longer exist, sometimes will include ones that maybe are still in business, but they've changed so much that they don't resemble the way they looked in the old advertising. But yeah, the Lost Attraction of the, of the Smokies book, it takes in not only the, uh, the Tennessee side, but the North Carolina side, because of course, there's a lot of stuff that's come and gone in Cherokee and Maggie Valley as well. And um, I think people are really going to like it. It's a beautiful, beautiful full-color volume with some, you know, some wonderful photos and brochures and postcards and things like that. And, can you uh, give us a taste of what some of the lost tractions might be? I, I well, can think of, of one like Ghost Town. Fairyland in there. <laughs> oh, you do? Fairyland. <laughs> oh, yes. And, of course, uh, yeah, Ghost Town in the Sky over at uh, Maggie, Maggie Valley. Valley. Um, there was a, there was another one in Cherokee called Frontierland that was owned by the same the same family. I remember that. Um, and then, um, well, of course, in Gatlinburg, you had places like Jolly Golf, which was one of the Sidwell courses that we were talking about earlier. Uh, of course, a lot of stuff has come and gone in Gatlinburg. They even had a uh, they had a spaceship ride at one time where people would sit in the spaceship and and watch a film that made it look like they were going to the moon and there were hydraulics that would make the the ship move up and down it was like it was a very primitive version of the motion uh what do you what do you call the um like the attractions now where you sit in the seat and the seat actually moves the motion attractions like that um and i think i said in the book that you might think that a spaceship along the strip in Gatlinburg was the weirdest thing you would ever see, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> there are other things, um, considering considering how the, uh, the the Smokies have always been such a magnet for church tour groups. It's sort of amazing that they had attractions like a a, a place that was called the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic that. Uh, you know, had scenes from devil worship and all kinds of things like that in there. You know, yeah, somehow that just doesn't really seem to fit in with the buckle on the Bible belt. But uh, anyway, well, let me uh, let me I, ask you this question, Tim. Um, you know, because Gatlinburg was such it was such an iconic place, and I've talked to people all over the world literally all over the world who knows when i mentioned I'm from, I'm from tennessee they say oh gatlinburg you know so they've yep. been there it's just kind of blows me away and i think i've been there twice in my life <laughs> i think honestly <laughs> i spend more time in pigeon forge which brings me to my you, question you need to get out more i know i probably so but that brings me to my question did was pigeon forge always there doing the same type of attraction stuff or is oh, this no. a later blossom no, of course, some of the some of the early tourism maps and promotions for uh, for the Smokies don't even include a dot on the map for Pigeon Forge because there was nothing there really. Uh, and even when the attractions did start to develop there, it, it, it's funny to see their ads. It'll always say so and so located in Pigeon Forge, five miles north of Gatlinburg. I mean, that was the only way people would know that it was there was for them to put it in relationship. But uh, I guess it was probably, well, of course, Gatlinburg is so hemmed in by the mountains that there really wasn't anywhere else for it to expand. So it had to expand north along the highway. And, of course, now it goes all the way up to the interstate. Right. Uh, 
but right. in the in the late sixties, uh, there's a there's a, a promotion for Pigeon Forge. I think as late as nineteen sixty eight, Pigeon Forge had a combined total of two hundred and fifty motel rooms in the whole town. Wow! And so, no traffic lights. And uh, probably yeah, m- more than likely no traffic lights. Uh, so it was. Um, as I said, it's really amazing when you consider how recent all of this development is. Right. Uh, and of course, if there was nothing in Pigeon Forge, there was really nothing in Sevierville as far as, exactly. as far as tourism was concerned. It was like your last resort. But uh, Tim, I got to tell you, this has been a fascinating journey. I love it. It's it hits the 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 root of fun. my heart. It, I, I love doing this. I'm gonna. I, I want to. Can't wait for that next book to come out. We're gonna have you. Thank you so much, Tim Hollis, for joining us. Well, thank you. All right. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard Swan and Eric Glasgow for our producer. We'll be back next week on the Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.